is the saying no creed but the bible biblical or is it actually something that might subvert the gospel and actually turn people away from christ join me today on creeds and deeds as we discuss this topic Reformed and Evangelical, Confessional and Missional. Welcome to Creeds and Deeds. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud for what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, that all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear does not does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice, he will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of our Lord. Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer. The souls of believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Scripture Proof. John 5, verses 24 through 29. Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right, so today I wanted to talk about this idea of no creed but the Bible and talk about whether or not that's biblical and what it actually does to the gospel. So I started thinking about this yesterday when we were talking about the different views of baptism and how they affect regeneration. And it got me thinking about the fact that the Church of Christ uh, denominations teach that you can't be saved if you're not baptized. I was wondering where they got that from, and I started looking and I figured out that they'd subscribe to this no creed but the Bible theology. And um, that's one of them. There's actually, and so as I looked at it, I mean, uh, I figure I, I would say that this idea of no creed but the Bible is unbiblical, first of all, uh, for multiple reasons. And also, it actually subverts the gospel, and it tends to lead to really poor theology and um, churches leading people away from Christ. And I thought I wanted to give some examples. There's four big examples of this that we see, I think. Um, The first one is the Church of Christ, just like what I was talking about. Um, They teach this no creed but the Bible thing. And because of that, they think, or because of that, they like have this idea that if when you confess your faith for the first time, you're not immediately baptized, that you're not actually saved because they would say that it was just like they have to go hand in hand. But that's not what the Bible teaches, first of all. Um, But they believe that it does. Their interpretation of it, that's how they say. Uh, The second one is um, liberal theology. Uh, You see this in things like the United Church of Christ and other liberal denominations where they've turned away from historic confessional confessions and creeds. And because of that, they've stopped believing that the scripture is, they say that there's no creed but the Bible, but they say that the Bible isn't uh, the inspired word of God. And because of that, they started doing things like uh, just moving away from Orthodox Christianity, things like Oh, excuse me, ordaining women, um, ordaining homosexuals, accepting homosexuals into the church, um, accepting abortion is okay, all sorts of stuff like that, uh, denying the deity of Christ, all sorts of things like that. Um, the third one is the Pentecostal movement. Uh, you see a lot of them that believe in this idea of no creed but the Bible. And then you go to their churches and they're all, you know, shouting gibberish and getting up and rolling around in the aisles and all of that. And yet they affirm supposedly no creed, but the Bible. And then the last one is uh, kind of a difficult one to talk about because it's very popular, but I think that you see a lot of problems in it. And that is the Bible church or denominational movements. Um, they got, I put them hand in hand because technically Bible church is not a denomination, but you see the Bible churches all over and then just normal non-denominational churches. 
And a lot of these churches, like my mom's church, are excellent. They have great pastors, great elders. They teach biblically. Um, but usually the reason that those guys are great is because they're influenced by historic Christians that actually hold to confessional standards. So it's interesting. But anyways, um, the problem, though, is is that you have no idea when you go into one of these churches whether or not they're going to have sound doctrine or not because they say they hold to nothing but the Bible. And so you have no idea, like, what does that mean? Because like we just talked about, there's a whole plethora of churches out there that say that they hold to nothing but the Bible, but then have all sorts of crazy views. And you see that in churches. Um, I've been in churches where they don't preach the gospel and they just talk about how, oh, the end is coming and the world's falling apart. And then they get in like politics every week. I've been in churches that preach a very messed up view of the end times. I've been in churches that have... Uh, that preach um, like Calvary chapels, for instance, they believe in this thing that they call biblical called the Moses model, which of uh, church government, which doesn't match what the New Testament says. So my point is, is that there's a lot of ways that the idea of no church, but the Bible, or sorry, no creed, but the Bible subverts the gospel. And so to go along with that, I found this, I found a couple of articles um, I found one on DesiringGod.org, and then I found a couple on the Gospel Coalition. And uh, this one, I think, helps to describe it in the best way. So, it sounds so heartening when you first hear it. No creed but the Bible. You're a young Christian. You love the Bible, and you're eager to be around people who share your passion for the Word. But as time goes on, you realize there are some problems with this seemingly innocent sentence. No creed but the Bible actually functions as a governing theological statement that norms all others. In a dazzling burst of irony, no creed but the Bible fails its own test because it is a creed. Then you study a little evangelical history. You realize as you read up on the 20th century controversies between evangelicals and Protestant liberals that no creed but the Bible was used over and over to steer churches away from sound doctrine. When seminaries and colleges hired professors who taught liberal ideas, evangelicals in the Northern Baptist movement, for example, tried valiantly to lash their movement to a confession of the faith in the 1920s. That motion failed. Why? No creed but the Bible won the day. Today, the Northern Baptists are a shell of what they were. They've been gutted by theological liberalism. Their schools are in many cases out of business. Members have departed in huge numbers over the decades. This isn't a strange outcome for the No Creed movement. This is the same song, Thousandth Stanza, Unsound Doctrine Kills. And it's a misleading mantra. There is no text like scripture. The word of God is Theophanoustos. God breathed, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. Its holy origin speaks to its holy character. As the reformers understood, Scripture alone, or sola scriptura, has authority to norm the doctrine of God's people. Old and New Testament together bear nothing less than divine weight, teaching us the ways and the will of God. No other source, authority, or voice comes close to the authoritative power, authoritative power of the Bible, which alone revi- reveals Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, in Revelation 22.13. From the earliest days of the earliest churches, Christians have been a scripture people. 
Yet, as unsound teaching rose millennia ago, church leaders recognized the need to standardize the gospel doctrine to separate false teachers from true teachers. Tertullian promoted the rule of faith, a summary of core Christian truth. The Apostles' Creed and four ecumenical creeds continued this standardizing work, helping the church distinguish false Christology and counterfeit Trinitarianism from the biblical Christ and the biblical Trinity. In the era of the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of scriptural soteriology and ecclesiology fueled the rise of confessional groups. The English and American Baptists, for example, produced no less than three hefty confessions to guide and protect their churches, London in 1644 and 1689, and Philadelphia in 1742. The Reform Movement looked to the rock-ribbed Westminster Confession of Faith. Believers from past generations didn't think these foundational documents normed the Word of God. They did believe these statements confessed the core teaching of Scripture, and did so with particular reference to areas where the faith might suffer attack. The strangest thing happened in the 19th and early 20th centuries, however. With the rise of liberal theology, different groups moved away from doctrinal standards. No creed but the Bible gained popularity in this age, as noted. It sounded so good. The person using the phrase valued the word so highly that the Bible alone functioned as their confession. Their theology was so pure, so untouched by human opinion, so unsullied by human interpretation, that it couldn't be reduced to a few hundred words on a sheet of paper. But in truth, their theology was far from pure. The same theologians and pastors who deployed this statement to shut down debate were in fact revising the traditional doctrine of the word. The Bible that was supposedly was their creed was errant. Bible authors weren't fully trustworthy. The doctrine of inerrancy is denied and other doctrines necessarily follow. So it was among Protestant liberals such as Jeff Straub and Greg Wills have shown. Biblical creeds give life. Liberal theology steers clear of systematic theology, seeing it as man-made. But in doing so, liberal theology steers clear of apostolic teaching. When Paul speaks of the deposit of gospel teaching, for example, he's referencing a standard, a proper conception of the message of Christ. When he speaks of another Jesus that unsound teachers preach, he's referencing the need for a right understanding of Jesus, a normative understanding. When Peter tells us that false prophets promise freedom, he is communicating the need to distinguish between the truth and a lie. Confessions and creeds help the church heed these apostolic mandates and many others we could mention. No creed but the Bible doesn't even meet the Bible's own doctrinal expectation. The apostles not only allow believers to systemize their doctrine, they demand the church to do so. This isn't because they wish to squelch joy. It's because they want believers to know the truth, believe the truth, love the truth, and be set free by the truth in fulfillment of John 8 verse 32. They don't want precious souls drawn off by wolves. They want men and women to flourish in Christ and to be presented spotless on the last day. Philippians 2 verse 15. Doctrine doesn't get in the way of this lofty end. Doctrine is the gateway to it. Unsound doctrine kills. Sound doctrine gives life. No creed but the Bible may be used by some good-hearted, God-loving people, but all too often, schools and churches that embrace this creed end up teaching unbiblical ideas, such as annihilationism, inclusivism, biblical errancy, the denial of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the acceptability of homosexual 
homosexuality and cross-gender identity, the denial of wrath-bearing substitutionary atonement, and more. These same church schools and churches seem to speak softly, but their classrooms and pulpits conceal thunder. They foment unbelief, or they foment unbelief. They reverence doubt. However well-meaning, they turn the hearts of the people away from God and His righteousness. But not only this, they carry a big stick. They fiercely police their boundaries. They expel sound voices. They say they love and tolerate debate, but often act intolerantly to shut it down. They do this... They, all, they do all this in many cases quietly. They network and speak with exceeding shrewdness in public before evangelical parents, assuring them of their fidelity to God's word. But behind the scenes, many are enacting revolution, starting fights over truths once terrorist, cherished, and plotting a new creed and an altered Christianity. But not only altered, for as J. Gresham Machen prophetically said, this Christianity rapidly ends up no Christianity at all. Rise up. Let's do better than this. No creeds. Let's do better than no creeds but the Bible. Let's not fall prey to old traps. Let's raise up churches full of believers who search the spirit inspired scriptures with affections entranced by the majesty of God and the mercy of Christ. Let's stop serving up soft targets to unsound teachers. If our churches and institutions have strayed into falsehood, let's take them back. Let's not send our beloved sons and daughters to colleges, universities, and seminaries as lambs to the theological slaughter. Let's send them with love and prayers to be instructed in the most holy faith so that they may so they trust the Bible and esteem the creeds and confessions that witness to the Bible. All right, so based on all that, um, I found a thing here that's it's 10 problems with the no creed but the Bible thing, and it kind of summarizes what I just read. So here, here's those things. First of all, the first problem with it is is that that slogan is uh, in bag, in, I'm sorry, it's ambiguous and in need of clarification. So pretty much like there's what does that mean? Does it mean that oh the Bible is correctly inter- if it's correctly interpreted um it's our final authority. So that's a uh, sola scriptura which is what the reformers believed and that's true. But most of the time when they say this they mean does it it means that or they're saying that the bible is the only authority in church life and the only basis for our views with no help given to us by creeds confessions or any interpretations and that's called solo scriptura um all right and then secondly it's a wrong appeal for unity so the idea behind it is is uh it's has its roots in the desire for christian unity and that goal is admirable, yet the mere appeal to this common source opens the door likewise to seek unity with or accept the presence of things like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, liberal Christians, Universalists, and hundreds of cults, which all appeal and say that they believe in the Bible as their sole authority. Um and they say, you know, it's like, oh, all they're saying like, oh, all you have to do is appeal to the Bible and we'll accept you. And that's not right. Um, it teaches misordered priorities. So this is connected with above. So if you're saying that unity is the highest goal, then truth will suffer. And the reason for that is because we know from Jesus's life that truth divides. Um, misordered priorities 
then leave the door open to heresy. So because they're seeking out unity, they, in order to try and maintain unity, it leaves the door open to heresy. So you can see that in things um, called like the Restoration Movement, which is like the uh, um, United Church of Christ and a bunch of those things. And it's like, oh, they're trying to get together so much that they're trying to restore one church and then they end up uh, compromising on matters of faith to maintain this unity. And they're all saying they believe in the Bible, yet they're compromising on it. Um, yeah, and so you see that um, places like accepting like non-Trinitarian churches and stuff like that. Um yeah. And then number five, it leaves the door open to heresy in various forms. So the slogan says, uh, I just pretty much, I just believe what the Bible says. Yet that exclude obscures the truth of this. So what the person's really saying is, is I believe what my interpretation of the Bible says. So then this confuses one person's entire interpretation of the Bible with what the Bible actually says and it assumes that they're one and the same. Um, but that's a man-made interpretation of it, right? And uh, yeah. And so then it's like that because they're using their man-made interpretation, that's like saying they're trying to prevent using the creeds and confessions because they say they're man-made but then they're using their own man-made interpretations to say that they believe in only the bible so that's crazy um so oh here's an example of that too we might imagine two people who have a opposing views of the word rather than appeal to agreeing on the majors a basic set of standards that form the essentials and allow diversity within the minors, like the non-essentials, birth interpretations must be seen as equally valid for both people despite the theological gravitas of the issue. Um, and so then this also creates this radical individualism that we see in the in the United States and Christianity where everybody's like, I don't need the church, I just read the Bible. And um, that's obviously a problem because then people aren't being connected and they're getting all these their own interpretations of the Bible that aren't true necessarily. Uh, the second thing is it removes objective truth and it replaces it with relativism, meaning like that it's okay that they or you know, that um, everybody thinks that it's okay to just believe what they believe and that everybody else, if they believe what they believe and I believe what I believe, they can be opposing, but they're both okay. And then it uh, replaces hermeneutical principles by which we assess valid and invalid interpretation and strong from weak ones and replaces it with overly broad theological pluralism. Uh, this leaves no recourse but to say that all interpretations are derived from the source are equally accurate uh, with none better or worse because evidently scripture is not clear about anything at all. So it's saying that, oh, I believe that you know, Christ or that God is Trinity. You believe that there's only one God and Christ is somehow subservient to him. We both got this from scripture. So we're just going to say that both of them are true because there's no like hermeneutic standard in order to uh, base that off of. All right. And then it also, it requires commitment to uh, this is number six. It requires commitment to naive presuppositions in order to accept this slogan and what it teaches. Uh, you must 
somebody must presuppose some presuppose some very basic truths, such as that the Bible, the meaning of the Bible is clear, the interpreter is free and capable, and the hermeneutic method is common sense. So we can take the Bible alone and Bible facts with note or comment as the uh, standard of faith. That's what somebody's saying. But if we dig into these views, right, what do you consider to be clear Bible facts? Arminianism as opposed to Calvinism, immersion, yeah, so for instance, these are some of the things that are like, what are the facts? Arminianism versus Calvinism, immersion versus sprinkling, credo-baptism or infant baptism, a rejection of Trinitarianism, a rejection of deity of Christ, the moral influence theory of the cross over against substitutionary atonement of Christ. Many will rightly protest that the clear, that clearly we are not working with the same definition of clear. And so some of these are non-essentials, but the nature of Christ, nature of God are paramount to it. And then number seven, so it throws the baby out with the baby water or with the bath water. So some people, um, they grow up in a confessional church, but that confessional church has gone way too far and like made the confessions on the level, the same level as the Bible. So then they throw the whole thing out and they go to this extreme stance against the plain meaning of scripture or they, um, they assume that all creeds and confessions go against the plain meaning of Scripture and result in division. But they don't think about the fact that maybe creeds in the right sense do in fact embody and are faithful to the plain meaning of Scripture. So what we need is a basic and consistent hermeneutic to evaluate secondary statements um, that are supported by the Holy Scripture so we can weigh and affirm those things. So if someone wants to debate how inspiration works, for example, that is fine. But that inspiration is clearly taught should be a given, a starting point. If someone wants to debate how the Godhead functions, there's room for lots of dialogue. But that the triune God exists is a foundational truth. It is not a difficult or contrived argument that scripture implicitly explicitly affirms the deity of three distinct persons, thus revealing the truth of the triune Godhead, yet allowing also for a mystery. So it's a shame that certain Christians have been uh, chained to this principle and they miss the most rudimentary starting points for the Christian faith. Um, and then the last view is, is that the no creed but the Bible is self-refuting on a number of different levels. First of all, it's self-refuting in terms of logic. So let's compare it to the term people are like, oh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Just ask them, so do you think that statement's true? Because if they do, they're affirming that that statement is absolutely true. So therefore, they're self-defeating themselves. It's the same thing with this no creed but the Bible. That in itself is a creed. They're, that's a statement of what they believe. So it's self-refuting. It's refuting the fact that there's no creed because they have their own creed. Um, it's because it's used authoritative, authoritatively to protect one's beliefs and to exclude those who are historically creedal, but even those that want a basic definition of Christianity publicly and formally stated as an identifying marker. Um, it's self-refuting in terms of consistency. So where does the term come from? Or where does the concept come from? Does it come from human reasoning or Bible, biblical teaching? The slogan purports to teach that only the Bible should be our creed, yet where in the Bible does it teach that only the Bible should be our creed? In fact, 
I would argue, uh, along with the people that I'm reading here, that First Timothy one, uh, or sorry, Second Timothy one, um, Paul argues that, and when he says, uh, "Hold fast to the form of sound words," demands that we faithfully and accurately preach, teach, and confess words that are in line with Scripture, and to the extent where they agree with the Scripture, they are therefore authoritative. Um. Along with that, the slogan doesn't work when applied to itself since it rests on the fact that the canon of the Bible must first be defined by authoritative early church creeds and councils. Uh, you might wonder if the God, if this slogan were God's intent, then why does he want us to preach at all? Preaching is not the Bible, but truths based upon the Bible are preached. So should we simply just read the Bible without note or commentary and let the people in the pews do what they may with it? This seems to be a more consistent use of the slogan's philosophy. Lastly, it's self-refuting, this number 10, in terms of practice. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, meaning I believe. The fact of the matter is that everyone has a creed, whether implicit or explicit, formal or informal. Everyone reads the Bible through a particular lens, a starting point, stated or unstated. So instead of denying this fact or trying to skirt around declaring non-buying principles or suggestions, we ought to declare authoritatively that most clearly revealed core tenets of the faith or the most clearly revealed core tenets of the faith as our starting point or entrance point or replication point for our churches. Now, in actual practice, the slogan probably means something more like only the Bible should be our creed. Hence, if a church stood against the ideas of conditional immorality or slow soul sleep, but still wanted to join the denomination simply because they affirmed the slogan, I imagine there'd be little reason to let them in. Um, how on earth is that consistent with no creed, but the Bible, what authority does the con does like whoever's deciding whether or not to let somebody into this denomination have to deny them membership as long as they're appealing to the Bible as their divinely inspired inspired source? It sounds like some conferences are acting as though they have agreed upon a statement of faith more specific than no creed but the Bible. In fact, I would guess that most are doing something similar. So let's bring this out of the shadows and make it explicit. So in the end. Sola Scriptura should be the guiding principle. When rightly defined, it affirms the final authority of the Bible, but does not exclude the wise counsel of those who have gone before us. It recognizes freedom of interpretive communities while not affirming the validity of every individualistic interpretation. It recognizes that there will be, in a fallen and imperfect world, certain relativism between these interpretive communities, and yet it still finds common ground and unity around the principle itself and the core tenets of the faith. I believe it is superior in every way to the solo scriptura inherent in the slogan, no creed, but the Bible. And so finally on this, I'm sorry that this went long, but this all goes to show, this is trying to explain why we need things like the confessions, the catechisms and the creeds to, first of all, to teach the faith. And secondly, to understand the faith rightly. First, the understanding the faith rightly is important because when you look through the catechisms, the creeds, and the confessions, it gives you statements. And then those statements are backed up by the Bible. So you can go and search those statements to find out what historic Christianity believes. So it helps you to know what we believe and back it up on the Bible. So we're still appealing to the Bible as our final and only authority, but we're saying 
based on what the Bible says, this is what our core beliefs are. And the second thing is rightly teaching the the Bible. If you don't have the catechisms and everything to teach the Bible off of, and you're trying to teach your children to grow up to live as a Christian, then you're having to interpret the Bible and try to teach God's word all by yourself. And we see, you know, 80 to 90% of people when they turn 18 leave the church because they're taught the Bible and they're taught the faith so poorly that when they get out into the world, they don't see a need for it anymore. But back when creeds and catechisms were much more common, there was way more people that stayed in the church. And you see amongst confessional churches where they're raising kids by teaching the creeds and the catechisms, the same is true that many more kids stay in the churches. So what a great way to teach our children by teaching them the creeds and the catechisms and the confessions. So thank you for joining me for this long episode of Creeds and Deeds, and I hope to see you tomorrow for Theology Thursday. All right, after that discussion about creeds and confessions, let's go ahead and in prayer confess our faith together using the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in, the Je- and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, together, let's say the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.